Hello, I'm Elena DelVal, and this is the HispanicNPR.com podcast. My guest today is David Waltner Taves, who is author of On Pandemics, Deadly Diseases from Bubonic Plague to Coronavirus. We will discuss pandemics. David is a Canadian epidemiologist, veterinarian, and specialist in the epidemiology of food and waterborne diseases, zoonoses, ecosystem health, and One Health, whose work has been instrumental in the development of teaching and training programs across North America, Europe, and Asia. He is the author of more than 20 books, including textbooks, nonfiction books about science and health, murder mysteries, and poetry, as well as short story collections. He lives in Kitchener, Ontario. David, welcome. Uh, glad to be here. Gets me out of my, uh, away from the computer. Well, it doesn't actually, but that's okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, l- let's talk a little bit about the basic definition of pandemics. What do we mean when we say we're going to talk about pandemics? Because there seems to be some controversy just on the topic itself. What does that mean? It, it means... It, as an epidemiologist, say there's there are outbreaks. So if you have a people at a dinner and they're eating and everybody gets sick, we tend to call that an outbreak. So it's a contained thing. Um, an epidemic tends to be a larger than an outbreak, but it tends to stay within borders more or less. And a pandemic goes around the world. Now, having said the word pandemic, it's got technical meanings in terms of moving cross boundaries, moving around the world. But there's a kind of, there's also a subtext, a political text, if you want, that if you use the word pandemic, it implies certain kinds of action. It's like declaring something to be a national emergency. It frees up all kinds of funds that requires different kinds of political action. So pandemic is a bit like that. There's a technical medical word, but there's also a political component to it. And so when we hear the word, we tend to hear the, I suppose, the political side, where, oh, we have to do this and this and this, we have to have these programs, those kinds of things. Um, so I think we need to get past that a little bit and and look at what are the diseases, where do they spread? Uh, we have some diseases like salmonella, for instance, got into the food supply, it's around the world. We don't call it a pandemic, even though it's pretty much in every country now. Um, we have other diseases. AIDS was called, it, they call it multiple epidemics. And some people call it a pandemic, which it kind of is, but it, there's different kinds of responses to it. So there, it, there's a kind of um, fuzziness, not fuzziness, but there's a kind of ambiguity to using that term because of its political implications, the way it's, the way it's used. These superbugs that we're hearing about, yeah. that the hospitals and the institutions are plagued with now, as far as I know, worldwide, and that are antibiotic resistant and basically there's no cure for them. Where does that fall in this conversation? Is it a pandemic? Is it an epidemic? It depends who you talk to. They if. I've seen presentations by uh, people, for instance, from the, it's called the EcoHealth uh, something. They're they're based in the U.S. But where you look at 
the most common, what they call emerging diseases, new or emerging diseases that we haven't seen before are actually these resistance ones. And uh, I heard a talk by a researcher a few years ago in, in Europe, and she said that some of these resistance genes, they seem to show up everywhere around the world uh, fairly quickly. It's kind of like, uh, you know, bacteria without borders or something like that. Um, that because they transmit so quickly or because there are different causes in different places. So they kind of fit in. And because of travel, because of the way we get our antibiotics, we could treat them as um, as a pandemic, if you want. But their, their response is actually more national because health rules tend to be national, hospital-based, how we use, how physicians use antibiotics at different times. But they're finding now, too, that there are antibiotic resistance genes in some of the bacteria that live in soils, for instance. So where do those come from? Well, bacteria try to defend themselves against fungi and fungi against bacteria. So you've got different chemicals in the environment. What tends to happen is that we um, amplify those in you know intense settings like hospitals and and treatments and we we have something that's really good it works well in a certain situation and then we apply it everywhere because it's so fantastic let's use it everywhere but then that you get you get resistance developing and it doesn't work as well anymore and then you have to look for a new drug so this is what happened with pesticides it happens with antibiotics uh, a lot of things which are really good if you target them um, if you use them everywhere, then they don't become as, as effective anymore. So is that a pandemic? Mm, um, I, I'm not, it, it's a different kind of response that we would need to that. And some people include that under uh, that one of the going sort of ways of thinking about this now is called One Health. So people are trying to integrate animal health, human health, environmental issues, all of those things and put them together. And they put antibiotic resistant bacteria in that larger category because it relates to how we relate to animals and, and other people and so on. You develop, you use a lot of drugs that are very good in people and then you start using them in dairy cows and pigs and chickens. They develop resistance and then it cycles back to people. So there's there are relationships there gets into the soil, it gets into the poop, but you know, it gets into the water supply. So then suddenly we have a drugs that work really well in some situations that don't work very well anywhere anymore. So it's a you know, it's trying to think about these different things and how they relate. If you're in agriculture, one needs to think about how does what I do here impact what's happening among people, not just in terms of food supply, but in terms of this other microbial world and, and, and those kinds of things. So um, it's, it's trying to get people to think in that connected way. How is that similar or different when we talk about coronavirus? Hmm. Well, for one thing, we don't use, we don't, generally treat coronaviruses. I mean, there's a coronavirus that's in just about every species. There was a, an epidemic in pigs in, I think, 2013, and like more than a million pigs died. There's no vaccine for it. And the way they deal with it in animals is they tend to depopulate, clean everything. Depopulate meaning they kill all the pigs, and then they clean the barns, and they start over again. Well, 
We tend not to do that with people. Coronavirus uh, viruses in general, the ones we're seeing now, like the latest pandemic, um, they circulate in wild animals in ways that the, among the wild animals, there's a reservoir. There are certain animals that might carry them around and they don't get sick. So bats have several kinds of these. Um, and they carry them around, but they don't get sick from it. But then if we get into closer contact, either directly with bats or with animals that are hanging around where there are bats, then we can pick some of these things up. Um, and then it starts circulating among people. So when they look back, for instance, um, after you know the whole uh, explosion in uh, 2020, 2019, 2020, um, they found that there were people throughout Southeast Asia who had some antibodies, had had some exposure to similar viruses over a long period of time. They either lived near caves or they worked with animals that were working near cave, uh, bat caves or those kinds of things. Um, and this happened not just with coronaviruses, but the virus that was basically used as the base of that movie outbreak where people were dying in the streets and it was very catastrophic, which was everybody's idea of what this would look like, um, is, was called Nipah virus. Nobody knew what it was, but it turns out that there were uh, fires in Southeast Asia, people were burning forests to grow palm oil plantations, the fruit bats were looking for fruit and the fruit trees weren't blossoming. And it turns out that the pig farmers in Malaysia were growing mango trees uh, around their pig farms and the bats went for the mango trees and the bats are kind of sloppy and they pooped into the pig pens and or they dropped bits of mango into the pig pens and the pigs ate those and then the pigs got sick and people got sick from the pigs. So it, you have those kinds of interactions and in some ways we're surprised, but we shouldn't be, um, because it's a different kind of context um, than what we're used to. You think pandemic, you think, you know, people coughing in the, you know, in a coffee house or in the grocery store. But if we go back, some of these things are circulating naturally without causing serious problems in wildlife. In fact, most of the things that cause problems in people have been circulating elsewhere before they got to us. So it's essentially something that was surviving or thriving in animals somewhere and mm -hmm. made a successful transition from that animal to humans or via an intermediary like the bats that you were talking about earlier. Right. Isn't or that, animals. Yeah, go ahead. Isn't that sort of how man has evolved? Because we've, we've always had a close relationship with domesticated animals. But there haven't always been 8 billion people on the planet. So part of it is crowding and we haven't always if, you, if I look at the graphs from the 1990s when there was this heyday of everybody was trading, Canada was sending trading teams to China, we're going to have business everywhere, um, pig production and chicken production went from, chickens went from 5 billion chickens a year to almost 20 billion, pigs went from uh, 200 million to almost a billion. So you had this huge explosion, the graphs just went off the charts. And accompanying that, so I got all this travel, all this shipment, you have 
bacteria and viruses that are associated with these animals um, that also travel. It's not just the animals. It's not just the people who are who are traveling between different uh, branches of a, let's say, a multinational corporation where somebody's got pigs in, in Mexico or Canada or the US and then they're shipping to China and they travel back and forth. They might go in and out of a barn. So the pigs themselves might not be carrying it, but people who go in and out of um, their their enterprises might do that. Uh, so are these, these connections are, um, they're not obscure, but they've been intensified. Most, I mean, even if we go back, um, measles, for instance, uh, is related to a disease called rinderpest, which ki has killed off millions and millions of cattle in Europe and in Africa. Um, vets developed a vaccine for it, and it, it was eradicated in about 2001. And then they said, well, we could do the same thing with measles, which runs into other kinds of problems, which we might talk about later. Um, but they, so that branched off, you know, thousands of years ago, five, 10,000 years ago. So that was a jump that happened previously, and then the virus adapted to human-to-human -human transmission. Not all viruses do that. If we look at uh, what we call bird flu now, um, there were outbreaks in, nine, in the late 90s, 96, 97, and then there was a, a big uh, explosion of interest and, and more and more cases around the world. Uh, in the early 2000s, 2003, 2005, um, they were all, the big outbreaks were in chickens. But if we look at human cases, there were only about eight or 900, and about half of those people died. The concern was that what if this gets, circulates in people, so we transmit it person to person, and then half those people die. It never actually did that. The until now, the bird flu has stayed in the chicken population, has not has jumped periodically to people, but usually it's people, for instance, in Southeast Asia, they're butchering a chicken and then they're eating it so that it's the people who are doing that work, um, who are handling those, those chickens, who, who are the ones that get sick. So it's not the general population, it's people who have their hands and noses in the blood and guts of of chickens. So there aren't that many that jump into the human population and then get transmitted on. I saw a report recently, I'm going to say BBC, but don't hold me to that, that they're finding the population of wild birds in Europe. I think they were specifically looking at Germany and Spain. Mm -hmm. They were doing a collaborative study, I seem to recall. And what they found was, to their alarm, that it wasn't just domestic, domestic animals, poultry, but that it was now among the wild population. And they listed a bunch of different birds right. that were now carriers. Well, one of the scares in the late 1990s with bird flu was that there were a lot of birds dying in, in China and in other places. And then also some mammals in zoos, they were feeding, you know, dead birds to animals in zoos and, and animals there, you know, wildcats and so on, were picking it up and getting sick. That was, that was um, more concerning 
I won't say scary because if I started being scared, I'd be scared of everything by now. Um, it, but it's something to pay attention to. The most recent bird flu spread is it's gone. I mean, it's in the in Canada and the U.S. It's been around the world. Uh, the concern there again is that we've picked it up in a lot of different mammalian species. So you know, like us, um, foxes, wolves, other kinds of animals, and. If it can go to those animals, can it come to us? It hasn't yet, but that's that's where the concern is. So as long as it circulates in chickens, that's one thing. The the natural home for pretty many, pretty much all the influenza A viruses, which are the general broad class we're talking about, is in water birds. So ducks. Uh, dabbling ducks, the kinds that uh, swim around and get their noses under the water, they normally carry some form of influenza virus. It doesn't kill them. A few of them might get sick. It's a gut virus, so they poop it out. It's a little bit of a gut infection. Um, and when we had these flu epidemics in, in the 60s and the 70s, uh, they tended to be, uh, when ducks were raised together with pigs, interesting thing about pigs is they have they can get infected with both human viruses and bird viruses so they're kind of a mixing bowl if you want and if the virus mixes up in the pigs and then gets back out into the environment then they might be able to get infect uh, infect people so i mean one of the lessons there is well you try to keep pigs and and ducks apart you don't raise pigs next to water you know, uh, streams and lakes. Same thing with if you've got domestic chickens, you try to keep them away from ponds and rivers and so on because you can pretty much assume that the wild birds have some form of influenza. They don't necessarily have the strain that causes serious disease in either other animals or people, but they have some strain. And those influenza viruses like coronaviruses, are somewhat unstable. So they, they adapt really fast. They, they change, they mix together with other viruses. They are not as fastidious in their uh, breeding habits as people are. So they, you have a lot of uh, mixing of genes and, and you can have a, what's called an, a low pathogenic avian influenza, LPAI, which is circulating. So it doesn't really cause disease, but then there's some switch that goes off because it encounters another virus uh, that's also circulating and it switches on and it becomes high pathogenic. So that's, it's looking for those kind of switches that the lab people are looking for. And for me as an epidemiologist, I'm looking at, well, how can we raise animals or be with animals in such a way that we're not deliberately exposing them. So if I've got backyard chickens, which my wife gave me seven chickens for my 70th birthday to get me out of the house. And um, I just, you know, are they a danger? Well, I keep them away from water. When the migratory birds come through, they're under a roof. They're, you know, they're not exposed to those kinds of things. So you can do that with commercial farms as well. Keep them away from waterways and so on. So there are ways of managing it reduce the risk, it doesn't eliminate entirely, and then you monitor for other kinds of things. So it's, um, it's, it's as they used to say in Facebook, the relationship is complicated. <laughs>
seems that word may not be may not suffice for the situation that we've had certainly as the coronavirus has evolved because we're not yeah. really talking about a single manifestation right. anymore right right so there you know if we go into detail there are two kinds of diseases that come from animals some of them are are from a technical point of view they're called zoonoses um, zoonotic diseases and those are ones where it requires a human to be in contact with an animal so you you have to if you're going to get rabies you have to be exposed to a rabbit animal right now if you're going to get bird flu it's because you're exposed to a chicken that's got bird flu um, other diseases started in animals but made the jump to people and then they become the the potential is there for being pandemic so they start spreading they adapt to people and they start spreading person to person and once they get into a lot of different groups of people then they modify themselves if we figure out a way to block them to kill them to vaccinate against them then they get modified and they find a way you have you know all these different versions of 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 uh, coronavirus that say, well, here's the, you know, omega or the beta or what, whatever the next one is. Um, and often they transmit better, but they tend not to kill as quickly. I mean, it's, if you're a virus, if you kill all your hosts, that's not very good for, you know, maintaining your, your life. Um, so, so they tend to be less pathogenic, but that's not always true. They have ways of of spreading so they adapt to people and then it gets even more complicated if you have a virus in people that goes into say mink as it has in some countries and then from the mink it gets modified again and then it comes back into people um, that boundary between what's a strictly a zoonosis to what's a pandemic disease uh, gets blurred again I mean I think the one of the underlying lessons is that we're part of this larger world which we we've learned to somewhat pay attention to you know the megafauna the pandas and the owls and those kinds of things um it's hard to pay attention to things that you can't actually see like viruses and bacteria we see their impacts but we don't you know unless you've got an electron microscope you don't actually see these things um so it's hard to manage um one's business one's life and politics in the face of that and so there's this, you know, we got lab people looking at those things, but then they have to talk to people who are managers, uh, uh, social um, people who are, understand social dynamics, uh, economists, so they can look at, well, how can we manage the situation? We're not going to kill all the viruses. Um, if you go back historically, we've got viral DNA in our own DNA. I mean, they're kind of part of us. We've got this microbiome that lives in us and on our skin and, and half our cells are made up of of bacteria that a long long time ago or single-celled organisms a long long time ago adapted to being us if you want um so the the, the idea i was going to say the trick but it's not really a trick it's trying to bring together all these different kinds of information say how can we it's not a war against viruses or bacteria it's a way of how can we accommodate each other how can we find a way to live on this planet so that we're not inviting um sort of pandemic disasters to come so less invasion into new um 
environments. And, and that's, you know, we think of, for instance, something like Ebola virus. It's, you know, it's in Africa. And you think about where is it in Africa? Well, it's around places where there have been different kinds of mines and oil exploration. Those mines and those oil explorations are not for the benefit of Nigerians or people in Niger or Democratic Republic of Congo. They tend to be for us, for computer components. We need those metals, which is why there's all this interest by you know France and the U.S. and other countries and, and China and what's going on in Africa because those diseases like Ebola are contained in that area, but they're active there in part because of the way our demands, our trade demands, have uh, disrupted ecosystems there. And so people then get exposed to new species in that area. They get you know, disrupted from their homes. They go to a new place for a job. They don't know the food. They eat animals that they find in the bush called bushmeat, bush some of which may have been exposed to bats. They may even be sick from bats, so they're easier to catch. And we see that, well, that's in Africa, right? But you look at why is that in Africa? Well, it's there because we're trading and we want those things out of those mines, whether it's, you know, lithium or gold or, or oil. Um, those are things that we want. And it's trying to get our heads around this global interconnectedness in such a way that you don't shut down global trade, but we're just more careful about it. So you pay attention to um, to what's, you know, the quality of, the, of what we're doing. And, and I think, you know, on the one hand, the 1990s, early 2000s were a time of, I would call it reckless global trade. Hooray, you know, we're trading with everybody. It's going to be good for everybody. Um, and I think what the last pandemic taught us more than anything else is that, in fact, there, you know, the supply we're connected to everything else, but that works all ways, right? We we trade to them, they buy stuff from us, but we also get bacteria and viruses that come from those places. How do we think about that? Well, we maybe have fewer supply chains, and that applies not just to bacteria and so on, um, but to, you know, for medicines and vaccines, and we pay attention to the quality of those. Um, so it's not like everybody trades with everybody else, it's you find people to trade with and you're careful, you monitor, you send people, you know, back and forth and say, okay, what's quality control here? Um, and I think that that period of, you know, everybody's going to make more and more money that we've got to, you know, contain that enthusiasm a bit and say, okay, trade is, can be a really good thing, but we have to be very careful. It's, you know, it's um, one could draw all kinds of parallels here, you know, Sex with a partner can be fantastic. With a thousand partners, uh, you're creating all kinds of problems, right? So a similar sort of thing with global trade. That's that's the kind of way that we've been treating it. And uh, and and I think, for instance, from a business point of view, it's trying to make uh, friends. I found that in in foodborne diseases and zoonoses, that those whole systems are based on trust. Do you trust the people you're trading with, that you're importing food from. Our whole food system depends on trusting each other. You can't police all of it all the time. And you can't have it all local. I like to buy things that are done locally um, because I kind of know the people and they're under our 
regulations here and they pay taxes that pay for my roads and so on. But, you know, there are a lot of things that we can't, and certainly in Canada, you know, we import things from the U.S. and Mexico and Africa, you know, Morocco and Spain and Israel. Um, so it's paying attention to not just the visible things that we're trading, but also what are the possible other bacteria, virus, and, and those kinds of things that are coming along with those, and how can those be managed? Tell us a little bit about Ebola and hmm. Lhasa and Marburg and just kind of like what is each one of these and how are they similar or different from each other? And then we can talk about do they fall under the pandemic? Because certainly Ebola, which is probably the one that everybody's most familiar with, has right. reached North America in the past. So I'll let but you it take hasn't it over. been transmitted here person to person. There was a lot of, you know, I remember when that must have been in 2014 or something like that, when there were people came back from places in Africa and they had Ebola and they got isolated in a hospital and those kinds of things. But Ebola, as well as Marburg and uh, Lassa virus is another one in that general class, they tend to get transmitted through very close contact. So it's, it's the initial um, uh, outbreaks, if you want, tended to be people who were they're doing funeral rites. So somebody died of Ebola and they didn't know what it was and they're going through the funeral process. They've got an open casket. They're burying somebody and those people get exposed. Or somebody with, with one of those viruses goes into the hospital and the hospital staff gets exposed. So in the first instance, you need to know what's there. Um, we knew about these diseases since at least the 1970s when the first reports came out. Um, they tended to be small localized outbreaks and um, of, you know, curiosity to investigators and so on. And they were, there were these books, uh, I think there was one called Fever, exclamation mark. And there was, you know, we're, we're all going to die from these things. And they are deadly if people get them. Um, but they're, uh, they tended to be localized. They also found that a lot of people in uh, those parts of Africa had, in fact, uh, antibodies to some of those viruses, and they were, um, which meant they'd been exposed at a low level for quite a while. If you're in a rural area, you don't have access to hospitals and so on, uh, people die. It's like with, you know, uh, coronaviruses. People were getting sick, old people were getting sick and dying from pneumonia. What was it? Well, I don't know, old people get pneumonia and they die in some of these rural areas. Uh, Ebola virus is more dramatic, but still it was not, um, it was not foremost in people's minds. Well, what's happened since then is this, this conflict between, I mean, if I think of Democratic Republic of Congo, um, since uh, 2018, there have been thousands of cases and thousands of deaths. Um, and if you look at where they are, for instance, uh, there's oil drilling in the same area where there's uh, Virunga National Park, which is a gorilla sanctuary, and there have been conflicts over that. And so the disease tends to spread in these conflict areas. And 
ironically, for instance, in, in West Africa, Liberia, Guinea-Bissau, and some of those countries, um, there were civil wars and, and uh, other kinds of conflict all through um, the 90s. And when those wars stopped and there was peace established, the first thing that governments did was they invited companies to come in to do mining and lumbering and those kind of things. You can understand why they might do that. It brings in money, but it also disrupts local ecosystems. So uh, the miners come in, they, they, they create a big mine, people are displaced, they find jobs in the mines, they're looking for different kinds of foods, as I said before, and they get exposed to these new viruses or these viruses that have been circulating there. And so actually, after the war was over, people had already been displaced, they were eating different foods. Then we had some really big outbreaks in the early part of this century uh, of Ebola virus. Um, Marburg is similar, but not, I mean, the reason it's called Marburg virus is because it was found in, in Marburg in a, in a lab there for people that had been, um, uh, had been studying uh, monkeys and various other kinds of things. So it's, you know, that's, so that's a research side of it. Uh, we use animals from other um, from other places in order to test some of our drugs, some of some of the to grow some of the uh, uh, medicines, some of the uh, vaccines, and so on that we would like to develop. So you have these cell lines. That's starting to shift. People are developing, you know, cell lines in laboratories where they don't have to go back to the wild and get. For instance, African green monkey cells, which were used for uh, detecting uh, the E. coli toxins. We, we have more lab-based tests like that, and that's a good thing because it means you don't disrupt those ecosystems anymore. We haven't quite figured out the, the way we can manage, for instance, the shift to, to electronic. Everything, you know, we want e-cars, we want e-this, and that's great for... Um, the climate, it's, you know, we're not burning fossil fuels, but then where are we getting these metals? Well, we're getting them from places like uh, parts of Africa, the Chinese have deposits, Canada probably has deposits, and they're often in places where um, we haven't done a lot of digging before. So then the question is, how can we manage that? And of course, you get into that. And suddenly this disease question becomes one of international politics. So it's, it's not just U.S. and Canada and China and Russia and how we relate, but it's how do we relate at that level, at the trade level, which is related to the politics. But it would be nice if we could just bring it down a notch and say, OK, things like climate, things like uh, finding rare metals. Is there a way to negotiate our way through that so that we're not you know, spreading diseases around at the same time. And that's a tough one. It's easier to manage these things locally, but as soon as you get globally, then you're into trade rules and, and those kinds of things. But I, I, trade rules have often been based not on disease transmission, but on straight up economics. Who's going to get much, which money, where, who owns which resources. And I think we need to move in the direction of uh, how does this work ecologically in terms of microbes and viruses and those kinds of things. Now, these last three that we've been talking about, they make the headlines because mm -hmm. 
they're so colorful. Is that a good word? Well, they're yeah, they're very dramatic. I mean, you see, you know, people, and it's it's. I mean, it's often outsiders, people from wealthy countries. Uh, who are flying in and wearing white suits and going around and swabbing people. And that's, and going into labs that are closed off. It's very, it makes for very dramatic visuals on, on TV and good stories. It's not that those diseases aren't serious. It's just that um, it doesn't get at the root of the problem as to where these came from in the first place. Um, you can't go in and bomb these places to get rid of the viruses and that's not going to happen. How do we manage um, guerrilla conservation? How do we manage mining and those kind of things? And yes, the disease is very dramatic. And I mean, one of the things that's, that I realized the other day as I, was, as I was looking at pandemics in the last, since my professional career started, the changes in communication, um, Twitter didn't start until July 2006. Facebook, February 2006, when they started opening to the public. Email was back in the 90s, but kind of rudimentary. Um, so the the pandemics that we're looking at of, of bird flu and, and SARS and SARS-2 and those kind of things, they happened before there was this widespread communication. And I remember being at a having organizing a workshop where we had somebody from um, uh, traditional media. He was a really good science reporter for the Globe and Mail and somebody else who was into electronic media. And he was the electronic guy. The young guy said, this is the future. And the other guy said, well, nobody's going to be able to pay for it. How are we going to do this? So there was, this was, you know, 20 years ago in my lifetime. It's not that long ago, but in terms of these diseases, we weren't, didn't have this international communi uh, communication. And that's, I mean, it's a two-edged sword, right? And it's one is uh, we get information more quickly. The other is we sometimes we get it too quickly and we think we need to respond in certain ways, uh, panic, you know, the world's going to end, the sky is falling, rather than saying, okay, this is happening there. Why is it happening there? Not, oh my God, people are in hazmat suits, people are dying and that's going to happen in New York City or it's going to happen in Miami. Um, it just sort of step back a little bit and say, okay, this is part of a larger pattern of diseases, of, of epidemics and pandemics, some of which um, the most recent pandemic before uh, this uh, SARS-CoV-2 was actually, um, it was called swine flu. Um, it was H1N1, and the reason people panicked was H1N1 is the same virus in general as the one that caused the 1918 pandemic, which, you know, killed millions of tens of millions of people. And so there was a kind of panic. Um, that one happened in, um, in an American-owned uh, swine farm in Mexico. And there are reasons why people do that offshore, but they were growing uh, pigs there and they were shipping them uh, back to the U.S. or into Southeast Asia, into China. Well, that's asking for mixing because, in, for instance, in, if you've got a situation where the farm workers don't have paid sick leave or health insurance, if they get sick, they're going to go into the barn. So you have the farmer, the farm workers might have a virus. 
it might be a coronavirus, it might be an influenza virus, and they go into the barn working that day, they cough on the pigs, the pigs circulate it, the, there are birds around. So that H1N1 was actually a mixture of human, pig, and, and uh, bird viruses. And, and we're lucky, it, it was interesting from a, an epidemiologic point of view, it was declared a pandemic, but it turned out not to be serious. It wasn't, didn't have, you know, not, they estimate, you know, maybe a couple of hundred thousand people died. That's a lot of people. But in the larger scheme of things, it really didn't merit a kind of panic. So people, we kind of backed off and said, well, if that's a pandemic, then how does that relate to this? And if we go back to where we started talking, a pandemic it's about where the disease spreads. It spreads around the world in different ways. It doesn't tell you how serious that disease is. So you can have a pandemic of something that, yeah, it's spreading around everywhere, but it's not necessarily killing a lot of people. So um, I can't remember where I was going with that. The point is that there are all these connections that we need to pay attention to. And, and you know, from my point of view, and it's a particular, maybe it's a Canadian point of view, I don't know. I think that if we're importing or exporting um, particularly animal foods, but other kinds of foods from other countries, that the facilities in those countries, the workers should have paid sick leave and, and some kind of health insurance built into their, their, uh, their work there. Um, not because we're trying to be, you know, quote unquote woke or socialist or something, but because we want our food supply to be safe and we want to have not be spreading different kinds of viruses that way. So it's in everybody's best interest to do some of these kind of things, however we manage to do that. Where do rabies and malaria and Lyme disease, and most recently they have disclosed there's leprosy in the United States, including here in Central Florida, there's a pocket, I'm not sure how well, armadillos carry it around. So wherever there are armadillos, you probably have some leprosy. It's leprosy doesn't spread very easily. I mean, it's it's a very slow spread. If you pick it up early, it's easily treatable. Uh, we see pictures of people sort of end stage in areas where they haven't had treatment that wasn't picked up. Um, so I'm going to kind of tamp down on that a bit because. You know, people panic. The leprosy because it's got all you know. It's in the Bible. It's got all these. Uh, these are. It used to be common in Europe. It seems to have disappeared in most places. We don't actually know why, but it's not. Doesn't transmit well. Um, so and or what used to be called you know the used to be called monkeypox. Now it's called impox. Um, that requires fairly close contact. So you can. Uh, one of the recommendations is you can self-isolate. Well, okay, that doesn't require a mandate. It just says you want to stop the spread of this thing. Um, you stay at home for a while until you get better. You can do that for some of these diseases. Um, you mentioned some other ones, and I can't remember what they were. I go off on tangents here. There's so it's, many diseases we could get. There's so much. <laughs> I was saying rabies and well, malaria, Lyme disease, I think you said in the book, yeah. is the most widely spread zoonotic disease. Did I understand it, that right? It's, it's most widely spread tick-borne disease, um, certainly in the U.S. and North America. And that's, it's partly, I've been involved in studies where you look at the northward spread of ticks. And that's 
partly climate change and land use change. So you change the landscape, you have more urban areas, which actually heats up the local area because you've got this heat island effect from streets and buildings. Um, so the ticks survive better in that. If you don't have the if you can have the ticks, but without the, the Lyme bacterium that causes the disease, so it's not 100% correlation. The other thing that ties in there is having some, the particular disease goes through, um, it, it's a two-host tick. So it goes through, from ticks and then it goes, we usually think of it as deer. So we've got abandoned farmlands, we've got all these cute white-tailed deer running around, and so the, the tick cycles there. That one's harder to manage because on the one hand, we want people to get out into the woods and go for walks. It's good for you. On the other hand, if you pick up ticks and you get Lyme disease, if you catch it early, um, if, if you have a, a sign that's what's called pathognomonic, that means if you see that sign, you're almost certain it's a disease. You get this tar little target where the tick bit. Um, then, and you, you treat it, you can treat it with, with penicillin. You get rid of it very quickly. It's if you don't treat it, that it lasts long and it causes all kinds of complications. And what happened was when we first saw it, we had really bad tests and most people didn't, most of the health professionals didn't realize it was in their area. It was, uh, these ticks were dropping off of migrating birds and some of them were infected, some weren't. So you had people showing up in, in hospitals and doctor's offices with these kind of vague symptoms and doctors, well, if you know, if you hear hoofbeats, don't think zebra, at least in North America, um, think something more common. Think the flu or think, you know, some kind of other uh, bacterium or something. Um, and now as it's spreading north, people are becoming more and more aware of it. So it's it's manageable. I, you can go for walks in the woods if you, you know, tuck your pants in and into, the, into your boots and those kind of things. Uh, don't go off the beaten path into the bush which isn't a good idea anyway. So you can kind of manage it and then look for, you know, you, you come out from a walk in the woods and you check yourself over or you have your partner check yourself over for bites of some sort or for actual ticks. So that one has been spreading north. Um, there's, oh, rabies is the classic zoonosis. So we don't spread it person to person. You get bitten by a dog, you get it. You get bitten by a fox, raccoon, uh, back in the 80s, we did some modeling here in Ontario, and, and, and they found that the primary reservoir here was were foxes and skunks. So what we actually did was we vaccinated the foxes, dropped vaccines from the air in different places. And it, it's interesting to me, it says, do not eat. And of course, foxes don't read, so they would eat it. Um, and they would get vaccinated uh, orally through this. The idea was... If you get rid of foxes, if you kill them, kill the foxes and skunks, it creates a vacuum and you get more foxes and skunks coming in. The other species that carries that are raccoons and they've come up the eastern seaboard. That's a long story. There's a whole variety of reasons that happened. Some of it was people trucking raccoons north for hunting. Bad move. My, you know, I'm not against hunting. I'm just, why would you truck raccoons north? Some of them were carrying rabies. And so there's concern they were coming across the border into Canada, uh, riding on the trucks as they come over the Niagara River, um, hanging on to the bottom. So what we've done there is at home, you vaccinate your pets 
so that your pets don't get rabies, so that you're not directly exposed. And then you expand it out. And can you vaccinate animals in the wild? Some of them you can. You're not going to get rid of it. Uh, some areas along the in long borders, Canada, the U.S. borders, they do trap, vaccinate, release. So they catch raccoons, they catch skunks, and they vaccinate them, and then they put them back out in the wild. The idea being, if there are more vaccinated wildlife out there, then a rabid animal is less likely to encounter an animal that's not vaccinated, and it stops the spread. So it, it tends to keep it right down. Um, that was it's kind of a, a rational approach to dealing with it. We still have an issue of you know rabies in bats, um, but that doesn't happen very often. Um, the other place we transmit <laughs> diseases is through organ transplants, uh, corneal transplants, those kinds of things. But they're getting you know the the people who do that are getting better at screening for toxoplasmosis or rabies, things like that. So the cases. I haven't seen any cases in recent years, but there were cases in the 80s and 90s where that happened. Somebody dies of an unknown cause, they get an organ and they put it into a, another person and it turns out that other person picks up this disease. So that's rare. Uh, there are bat rabies. We kind of know how to respond to that. There are better vaccines. Um, as a vet working internationally, I got vaccinated to prevent um, my getting the disease, but most people don't need that if you vaccinate your dogs and cats and you don't, you know, if you see wildlife behaving strangely, you know, call the wildlife officer. Don't mess with a, a, a raccoon that's too friendly or a fox that's too friendly. Uh, you know, you might like wildlife, but the, the wildlife that aren't afraid of you at least a little bit are not probably in their right minds. <laughs> well, that's a really good segue. You talked about cats and dogs, yep. so pets, and mm. increasingly people are adapting and embracing more diversity yep. in their pets. But tell us a little bit, you, you talked about that in your book, about the diseases that dogs and cats that are living in very close proximity to humans, you say that they carry a lot of diseases. It's often the puppies and kittens, the young ones, they get diarrhea from, you know, dogs have roundworms and the roundworms get out, you know, they, they put out eggs, the eggs are in the environment for a little while. And then uh, people get it by not directly from the dog, but by, you know, handling dog poop in some way, similarly for some of the cat diseases. So it's not directly from the animal, it's from an environment that the animal's been in. So, I, you know, in the 1990s, 1980s, there was a big move, you know, cover your sandboxes because the cats get in there and they poop in the sandbox and they cover it up. Well, that's where people were getting exposed to toxoplasma, which if people get exposed to it, they get a cyst. Um, it gets into their body and it spreads all over the place and, and you, they formed little cysts all over your body. With the roundworms, what happens is they get into kids especially and they the roundworms get in and they say, I, this isn't a dog. Where, you know, what am I doing in here? And so you get, this sounds gross, you get ocular larva migrants, uh, which is the larvae are looking for a way out and they come out the eyeball. Um, uh, visceral larva migrants, they wander around in the guts looking for a way out. Uh, and those are exposure to eggs that these animals have laid. And it's usually younger animals. 
people think, well, the little kittens and the little dogs, they're really cute. Uh, yeah, the mature ones are actually, from that point of view, safer, but it's it's the environment, really. It's the kitty litter, it's the, it's the backyard, it's the sandbox. And so, you know, you manage that. For a while, they thought, well, maybe people with HIV AIDS shouldn't be having pets like cats because a lot of people in the 90s were dying from HIV AIDS from toxoplasmosis in the brain. And they wondered, well, maybe they shouldn't have cats. Well, it turned out that if you're immune suppressed, the cysts which are in your body basically for life get reactivated um, and then they cause problems. So it used to be if everybody was exposed when they were little, then they would have lifetime immunity. But that doesn't, you know, if you're being treated for cancer or organ transplants or you've got HIV AIDS, then those cysts get reactivated. So that, you know, we had to rethink the whole business of how we deal with this this uh, disease that, that where they, they reproduce in cat, in cat intestines. And there are, you know, sometimes, you know, animals, people like to feed Oh, there's a raw meat diet. Well, if the raw meat uh, has salmonella in it or other bacteria, even like there have been uh, outbreaks with pig's ears where, you know, it's good for a dog to chew on, but they're infected. And then little kids get in there and they say, well, you know, I'm not going to get exposed to this. The dog's eating it. But, you know, kids, you have a little toddler around and they get their nose into the, the food dish. They're going to pick things up. So I'm, I'm less... Um, I'm, I'm more accepting of people that, you know, maybe it's because our families often had cats, uh, of, of people hanging around with cats and hugging them and things like that. I'm also aware that, you know, there's, you should wash your hands after doing that. And you shouldn't do it if the animal is sick. There was at least one case in California where a woman got the plague from nosing with her cat who had the plague, which she picked up from eating rats in a while. So I, you know, they're, you have to be careful with our pets, but there are reasons why we have, you know, pooper scooper laws in a lot of places. You collect the poop, um, and one of the reasons is so you don't spread these parasites into the environment. It, you know, it seems relatively simple, but it's it's not done everywhere. And I think when it first came in, people resisted. It's like wearing seatbelt. I got to wear a seatbelt. I've got to pick up my dog's poop. Now you just see people doing it. It becomes a habit. And from a public health point of view, that's great. You know, and some of these things, as long as they don't require, you know, huge inputs of money and so on, and they get the benefits of having dogs and cats, which are, you know, lower blood pressure and other animals to interact with, you know, if they're on their own or protection. If, you know, you're a young woman jogging in the park and you feel threatened, you've got a dog with you. Those are all good things. So we're trying to get the good things of interacting with animals and trying to manage some of these other things, getting the animals dewormed, getting them vaccinated. Um, we've learned how to manage that. Um, and as we move into other areas, can we not eradicate the diseases, but but manage them in such a way that, you know, some people might get sick, but most people won't. And if they get sick, maybe it won't be that serious, or we can treat it right away. So it's, you know, we're, <laughs> there was a disease uh, when I went through vet school, it's called Q fever. Uh, Coxiella burnetii. It's a it's a it's a per, it's a bacterium that gets into the cell, and um, it can cause all kinds of problems. People can get sick and 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 uh, die from it. Um, they used to say, well, no, you know, cats don't 
carry it. That's what I learned in vet school. And then in the 1980s, 90s, there was uh, a guy from Centers for Disease Control came up, up to Nova Scotia. There was an outbreak that they ended up calling poker players pneumonia because there was a group of people played poker in a, in a back room, you know, once a week. And there was a cat that gave birth in there and some of the kittens died. Well, this happens. Well, it turns out that what happened was this cat had this Q fever, this, this small bacterium. It got in, into the air, into the dust, and some of the people picked it up. So then they realized, well, this, this disease is around and we should pay attention to it. Uh, it doesn't mean we don't hang around cats or sheep, which is another place they're very common, this Q fever. Um, it, it, so it's, you know, it's learning how to manage these things. And in, in biology, you don't say, well, this animal never gets it. Well, you know, in biology, anything's, you know, the, these microbes and bacteria adapt. So, and they adapt more quickly than we can. So it's better to assume that, yeah, there's some possibility of risk here. How can we minimize it and wash your hands? Uh, don't, you know, if the animal's sick, um, you, you manage it differently. Uh, those kind of things. I mean, it's, to me, it's common sense, but I think it needs to be worked into more generally into people, how people understand the environments we live in. So how does that relate to the COVID-19 pandemic? And hmm. you were saying that eventually it just dies off or it just adapts well, to the new host. I think, I mean, what happened in some of the earlier I think it was the there was the 1950s pandemic of an influenza and then one in the 70s that those became part of our influenza regular vaccines. So people get regular vaccines, they they look every year because that those viruses change every year. The influenza viruses, like the coronaviruses, uh, the coronaviruses we don't have a standard vaccine that we don't know how it would work in the long run. Like, is it seasonal? Does it, influenza is very seasonal and that relates partly to, you know, people go to school and kids get mixed, you know, mixed with other kids. They're transmitting disease, all, bacteria all over the place and viruses. Um, how is coronavirus? We It hasn't been around as a disease long enough for us to see that there might be a, a long-term pattern and how we would respond to it. What happens if you vaccinate every year, but what would you vaccinate against? Is there a kind of general vaccine or do they adapt it to the situation? Um, and I, I think that we can be selecting for um, a virus that might spread, but it's not going to cause as much disease. And so instead of having, and, and I think this also, you know, I'm talking about local adaptation as well, you know, vaccine Depends what's available, what kind of facilities you have. Um, in retrospect, one could say that instead of having broad, you know, mandates of of uh, masks and and so on, to say every business can make up their own rules internally, and if people don't want to go in there, they don't have to. But if they go in, they have to wear a mask. That's the business owner's, you know, prerogative to do that. It does two things. One is that you can target particular situations where the disease might spread more easily and and recommended in those places, they probably should wear masks. It also means that if you're trying to track a disease, you can say, guess what? All the people that got sick and went to the hospital were at that one party. So now if you've got a 
a mandate that's supposed to cover everyone, not only do you get massive uh, public pushback and it becomes a political football, but you can't actually trace where these outbreaks come from. And that's in retrospect. When this happened at the beginning, you know, I, we really didn't know. You saw people walking around grocery stores wrapped in plastic and, and you had to, you know, buying all these hand-washing lotions, some of which worked, some of which didn't. Um, I, I think by now we figured out what might work if we had something similar in the future. Uh, the challenge is that we don't, you know, every pandemic is a little bit different. So it's a matter of staying on our toes. Uh, and I think keeping supply chains for key things like, like medicines, like uh, medical equipment, keeping them relatively short, uh, keeping them having, we can't all have the capacity to respond to everything at once. That's way too expensive, you know, that you know, every hospital has all of these things. But if they're kind of networks where we trust each other and say, okay, we're not having a problem here, you're having a problem, can we ship over these things? Whether it's personnel or whether it's uh, equipment, yeah, you can manage it that way. That requires a level of conversation and trust that we don't have right now. I think that's the kind of thing that we need to work towards. So where are we in relation to this big pandemic? It, it's not gone. There are no. still the last number I read was 100 cases, 100, I'm sorry, 100 deaths a day was the last number I saw. And yeah. number of Credible sources say that those numbers are highly underreported, that it could be 10 times worse. Well, people aren't going to the hospital now anymore, right? If they get mm -hmm. sick, they're, you know, it's like, why would I go to the hospital? There's so many other things going on. There was a backlog of things. So we don't actually know how many cases there are now. There are probably a lot, like there are a lot of flu cases. Uh, and I think we're finding ways to live with it, if you want. Like we've lived with salmonella you cook your chicken um but you also have regulations at slaughterhouses and so on with covid you know we can we can manage it um sometimes at home sometimes locally people get sick you you know you isolate in the family if you're coughing a lot you just you don't go out uh you might be shedding it we can't control everything and i think that's one of the lessons i think it's I mean, I know it's still circulating. People are still getting it and dying. And I think we're trying to find ways to say, okay, people are dying from a lot of things. What are our priorities? And what are the kind of things that can work across diseases? And I would say, you know, you're in a crowded place. People are shouting at each other, you know, wear a mask. That's what I, or if I'm in a hospital and people are walking around, a lot of sick people, immunocompromised people, I'm going to wear a mask doesn't mean I need to wear it on the street. Um, so there are different kinds of responses. And I think we're kind of at that stage. I mean, I've worked all over Southeast Asia. People wear masks all the time. It was no big deal. It wasn't a political statement. It was like, you know, I don't want to breathe this air. Maybe it's pollution. Maybe it's viruses. I don't know. Uh, it's just I feel better after that. So I think if we can find ways to if you want depoliticize and say this is common sense, let's do some of these things. Um, let's make sure there are vaccines available or the capacity to make them are available in different parts of the world. And we can we have ways of sharing fairly quickly. It's not like you 
built up, you know, a, a lead casing around, you know, whatever vaccine you're producing, that there are ways of sharing these things. Again, it comes back to some level of trust and uh, verification. You make a, you know, you, you make, a tra you produce things, you trade with other people, and then you verify that what's going on is actually going on. Um, and, I, you know, I, then, then we manage the situation. If we treat it as if it's a battle of us against, you know, the microbes, I, we're, it's self-defeating. Because, as I said earlier, we, you know, we're made up of microbes, basically. We're going to kill ourselves that way. So we, we manage. You try to increase life. You try to increase your well-being. Social interactions are really good for you. But if you're hacking and coughing, then social interactions are probably not as good for you. So I think we're finding ways to adapt to those situations. Um, we're hopefully getting better at it. I think we are, but maybe I'm an optimist. I don't know. I think I am. I got grandchildren, so <laughs> got to be optimistic for them. What is the net takeaway for people who are listening to us and saying, wow, there's so many scary things out there. I can't go out into the forest or the brush because there could be ticks or I can't even let my dogs out. I know people who won't let their cats out of their house mm -hmm. or rabies, often, you know, all of the, these. What's yeah. I think, you know, I think people don't let their cats out because the cats kill the birds. And that's a big thing. It depends where you are, how bad that situation is. And it's, I don't, I have colleagues who would say, never let your cats out. Well, my son's in Australia and they don't let their cats out at all because they're predators of tiny marsupials. But other places, it's more ambivalent, if you will, more ambiguous. Some people are going to keep them inside. I think that's a good thing. Um, and some of the other things, I mean, it's true. I mean, some of, when I would teach foodborne diseases, some of the students would come up to me afterwards and say, how can you even eat anything? Cause you know, everything could make you sick. And I, at a certain point you realize these bacteria and viruses are all around us. What are some common sense precautions we can take? So you, well, as I said earlier, vaccinate your dogs and cats, uh, neuter them preferably unless you're a breeder or something so that they don't go out and proliferate in the wild if the cats are running free. Um, treat them if they get sick. Uh, you know, wash your hands after handling um, kitty litter, uh, those kinds of things. You know, it's some of it's common sense um, and or it should be common sense. If you think that there's every place that there is some danger, there's also, I mean, it's an amazing planet we live on. There's also wonderful things going on out there, and those are good for your health, right? So there's this trade-off. I go for a walk in the woods. It's, you know, forest bathing. It's, uh, it's good for my mental well-being. Well, I, could I get ticks? Yeah. Well, how do I manage that? You might put on some um, insecticide. You might uh, make sure you tuck your pants into your socks, into your boots, um, and just adapt that way. Uh, we're not going to get rid of Lyme disease. You try to kill all the deer, that's not going to happen. Um, the mice, uh, the studies that have been done found that if there's a more diverse landscape, so you have lots of different plants and then you have lots of different uh, mice and rodents around, 
in fact, you decrease the amount of Lyme disease that's there because uh, the disease needs to find you know, a similar kind of host to transmit to. And if there are fewer of them because it's a diverse landscape, so biodiversity becomes not just, well, that's really pretty, you know, all the trees and we're trying to go back to the way it was before. It's like it makes it less likely that we're going to pick up certain kinds of diseases. And we never get to the point where we can never get it it just means we're less likely to get it. And that's kind of where we want to go. And, um, you know, not necessarily die from one of these diseases out there. Some people are going to panic about it. But I think for me, um, you know, as a, if you're a veterinarian or you're a doctor, panic is never a very good response to a situation where you see certain kinds of dangers. You look at what are the possibilities here? How do we make a judgment call, um, and how do we move ahead with this? And I, I think if you know, if we can get that through people's heads that there is, it's not this or that. It's not like, oh my God, these viruses are around; they're all going to kill us, or oh, that's really just something that somebody made up. It doesn't exist. It's somewhere in the middle. It exists, but it changes, and you know we can manage it. Amen tempered approach is what I'm hearing you say. Enjoy life. Don't freak out. Enjoy forest bathing. Enjoy the company of your domestic friends. Yes. And just take it one day at a time. And educate yourself about what things are possible. You've got a pet that you take it to the vet and say, well, what are the kind of things I could pick up from my dog or cat and how can I prevent their transmission? Um, those kind of things. And uh, and most of them, we figured out ways to manage them. Wildlife, it's more of an issue because we don't manage them. We don't vaccinate unless it's rabies. In Canada, we vaccinate for rabies. But, you know, yeah, enjoy life. Go out there. That's good for you, right? It's, um, and don't be pushy on other people. You should do this. You should do that. I guess the older I've gotten, it's like I'm less likely to say people are this is really bad. You shouldn't do this, even if I'm thinking it. You know, it's, I don't like people telling me that. So how do we talk our way through this? Well, what are we concerned about? What are we worried about? You know, well, one person might prefer social interaction more or their grandchildren more and other people prefer something else. They take higher levels of risk. They go skydiving or leaping off cliffs with, you know, with uh, parasails or something. Well, if they're going to do that, maybe they're going to take a risk on other things as well. I, you know, I don't know. It's it's not like one size fits all. And I think you enjoy life and you uh, enjoy the world we live in and um, take care. David, thank you for joining us from London, Ontario. Great to talk to you. And to our audience, you have been listening to David Waltner Taves, who is author of On Pandemics, Deadly Diseases from Bubonic Plague to Coronavirus, who discussed pandemics. To propose a guest for the show, you can email me directly at editor at hispanicmpr.com. That's editor at hispanicmpr.com.